Welcome to Quantum Magazine Science Podcast. Each week, we bring you stories about developments in science and mathematics. And this week, we're doing a special segment. We'll hear from four math and science teachers. It's early on a Monday morning in May in the Bronx in New York City. The five train runs on elevated tracks above bodegas, alongside treetops, and a maze of rusty fire escapes. The train pulls into the Baychester Avenue stop near the end of the line. Up the hill, a checker-patterned building is home to Baychester Middle School. Upstairs, there's a room called Cornell University to get kids thinking about college. Shauna Comer addresses her students with a big voice and an even bigger smile. The students scramble, searching through their backpacks until they're all seated at their desks with their notebooks in front of them. They're wearing blue school-issued shirts with big white letters across their backs. Over the course of the year, they earn shirts with letters that spell trust, train, or think. Today, the shirts say try. All around them are reminders to try. Posters say things like, life is complicated, let's deal with it, and think like a proton and be positive. In front of the classroom, words like parameter, syntax, and data type and their definitions are on the wall. At the back of the room, there are containers packed with pine cones and shells on a shelf. Below are containers for compost, soil, plants, rocks, starfish, and safety goggles. Comer is 4'11", but has a very large presence. Her voice easily fills the room, but she rarely raises it, except to let out a huge laugh or to praise a student. Now, in her 40s, she is a naturally inquisitive person. Everything is science, so there's not anything that you can touch or see or do that has nothing to do with science. And just being able to figure out how things work and why things work the way they do. I'm She's also a serial career changer. As a nursing student, Comer took advanced biology courses. She studied some physics and engineering for a job coordinating the construction of group homes. And after she became a teacher, she spent several summer vacations conducting scientific field research. I'm just a naturally curious person. And students, you know, many students can tell you that I get really carried away sometimes. I get so carried away and so excited about what I'm teaching. Um, and I think that that's infectious for them as well, and it makes them really excited and want to learn. But she says learning science is like learning another language. Elementary school teachers vary widely in their interest or ability to teach the language of science. So students arrive at Baychester with anywhere from some to virtually no science experience. Adding to that challenge, only 10% of the middle schoolers here read English at or above grade level. The most difficult thing about teaching sixth grade science is the fact that there isn't a standard for what science should look like in the lower grades. And so when I get students in in the sixth grade, they could have had done full-on experiments, doing inquiry, they could have only ever read textbooks and answered questions, or they may have not had any science at all. Comer says even at the middle school level, science isn't a priority because of the high stakes of testing and math and language arts. That's how teachers get rated and kids get promoted. Baychester is also right across from the largest public housing complex in the Bronx. It has 42 buildings, 2,000 apartments, and a history of gang violence. Most of our students are, are qualified for Title I which means that the uh, majority of our students are low-income students, and they come from the community. My goal with teaching sixth grade science is uh, primarily focused on engagement, because I feel if students are engaged and interested, they will then want to continue to study. Crystal, do you guys want to pick a building right here? 
Two days later, over at Eastside Community High School, Sony Midha takes her 10th grade geometry class out for a lesson on the streets of Manhattan. The goal is to measure the height of buildings around East 12th Street and 1st Avenue. The students face plenty of obstacles, piles of garbage, runners, and a heat wave. Are you guys doing this building also? Back in the classroom, the obstacles are more philosophical, thinking, calculating, and coping with frustration. This is what is known at Eastside as a struggle problem. Actual struggle, the experience of grappling with a problem, is a critical part of the learning process at this high school. In every classroom, there's a poster citing the social reformer and abolitionist Frederick Douglass. If there is no struggle, there is no progress. Here's Midha. So essentially a struggle problem, it's an open-ended, um, thoughtful, non-routine problem. It's very non-routine. Um, and sometimes it has to do with what they've already learned or what they're about to learn. And um, they're given a situation. And I may or may not give them a couple of hints. I may give them, you know, certain data. Like today was a perfect example. I told them, you know, the measurements. I was very explicit today about what they needed to collect, but there was no solving yet. So tomorrow the only hint I'm going to give them is remember there's a reason for your eye height um, and remember your final answer needs to be in feet because there's like a miles conversion, an inch conversion, all of this stuff. Midha, now in her 30s, has always loved math. It came easily to her. She had some doubts in the 10th grade thanks to an algebra teacher who did the standard chalk and talk at the blackboard. But during freshman year at Wesleyan University, she took calculus with a professor who considered mathematics and art. She recalls everything he said as profound. She became a math major and a music major. She plays classical guitar. I tell them right away, I'm like, you will struggle in this class, and that's okay. Like, I struggled in class, you know, in different classes along the way, and that's the only way that we're going to learn something. A lot of the times, especially in math, it's so simple to just be like, this is how you do it. Learn this now. We're done, you know? And it's like, you're not going to remember that. You're never going to remember it, like someone just force-feeding you some information. Midha decided to become a teacher while she was still in college, after teaching music, math, Spanish, and web design at a summer session for middle schoolers. She applied for the Fast Track New York City Teaching Fellows Program and got her start at a school in Brooklyn. She taught for four years and then took a two-year detour, leaving the country and working in marketing and public relations at a fashion house in India. When she returned home, she realized she missed the kids. Then she found Eastside Community High School, which is part of the New York Performance Standards Consortium. The consortium is a group of 28 schools across the state that oppose one-size-fits-all standardized testing in favor of performance-based assessment. She has been teaching at Eastside ever since. A few days after Quanta's first visit to Baychester Middle School, two men are shot in a car just steps from the entrance. Both are taken to nearby Jacoby Medical Center, where one dies. A New York Police Department crime scene unit seals off Baychester Avenue. The school day begins as usual. After lunch, students arrive in Comer's classroom for toy car labs. The lab involves building a ramp and testing how fast a toy car rolls down when the ramp is covered with different materials. It's a highlight of her simple machines unit. What concepts, what scientific concepts are we looking at, my line? Friction. What's friction? A few students offer partial answers. The force, we said it was a force, we said it has to do with surfaces. Soon, students are buzzing in groups, defining roles, and deciding which coverings to put on their ramps. Comer quizzes students to gauge understanding. What is a control? Brittany. 
Yes, Brittany said that a control is something that stays the same, right? So you're changing only one thing in your experiment, and that is the? The covering. We're only changing the covering, therefore, everything else in our experiment has to stay the same. So you are going to figure out with your team, what is that list of things that has to stay the same? Go. There's the car, the books beneath the ramp, the stopwatch, and so on. Several teams tally eight controls. One group has found eight, but not the same eight. They've identified a control the other groups hadn't thought of. The person who releases the toy car yeah, down the so ramp. That's nine. The person who pushes the car, that's nine. But then there's the eighth one that you're missing. The ramp, she has ramp, you have position of ramp. That's two different things. It's ramp and position of ramp. It's two different things. When she satisfied that everyone has the basics, off the kids go to gather their materials and build their ramps. The classroom becomes a construction zone. Sean Mangar, the principal, called Comer's class the loudest at the school, but loud for the right reasons. Students like Shomari are thinking and learning in what Mangar calls controlled intellectual chaos. The hardest part about this project is pretty much me and my group figuring out all the elements that we need for the project, like agreeing on certain things. Sometimes we have to compromise, sometimes we have disagreements. But at the end of the day, we all pretty much agree on one thing, and we're all satisfied with what we agree on. Another student, Cameron, says that at his old school, they just read textbooks. Last year, we didn't really do any projects, like hands-on things, and then we just read textbooks and stuff. But now we get to do hands-on things, and it's very fun for me. And Ms. Comer, I like the way that she teaches. She goes deep into things that we have to learn about. And she never rushes. We just take our time learning about what we have, what we have to learn about. Last winter, when there was ice on the ground, Cameron says he thought about friction and where to place his feet to avoid slipping and falling. After four years teaching at the high school level, Comer became the founding sixth grade science teacher at Baychester. Mangar said that soon after Comer was hired, she showed up in a U-Haul loaded with science material she had purchased over the years. And last year, she took a popular rap song, Trap Queen by Fetty Wap, found the background music, and organized a competition for students to rewrite the lyrics with science content. The winning students performed their remake about the water cycle at the Science Genius Competition at Columbia University. Comer also started an after-school engineering club with funding from a consortium of universities. She later received a $2,500 Summer of Innovation grant from NASA to purchase supplies for it. The school's founders never planned for science to be a focal point at Baychester. Mangar says the credit for it taking off the way it did goes to Comer. Students will be struggling in two or three classes, and all of a sudden they're a rock star in science class, he says. Comer is also known for insisting that students solve their own problems. With all the messages out there telling Baychester students what they can't do, Comer doesn't give up on them, and she doesn't let them give up on themselves. Grab your sandwich.
That same day, in an affluent suburb west of Boston, Aaron Matthew introduces a lab experiment to his advanced placement biology students. They're at Acton-Boxborough Regional High School. Matthew is 42, has a boyish appearance, and talks with a voice that is alternately serious and laid back. His students scatter into groups chatting loudly. Matthew reins them in with a reminder to prep their test tubes. Then he relaxes, calling the students cherubs, an affectionate term he picked up from his own high school physics teacher. Six years ago, Matthew decided to try a risky project in his honors biology class. The students would collect bugs from the school's grounds, grind them up, and extract DNA. Then they would try to isolate DNA from a specific type of bacteria living inside the insect's reproductive tracts. The experiment was complex. Matthew and two fellow teachers had spent a couple of years thinking it over and trying to decide whether to attempt it. They were drawn to the project because it combined molecular biology concepts and techniques with the real practice of science. If the experiment was successful, the students could potentially identify new species carrying that particular microbe called Wolbachia and uncover new strains of the bacteria. But the project could also turn out to be a total failure you know, it was, about, it was about 10 years into my teaching career that I was thinking critically about what is it my students are doing and were they in fact doing science. And the reality is they weren't. They were doing, as I said, canned labs where they were generating data that was predictable and they weren't really having that opportunity to fail at anything and then have to do any error analysis whatsoever. Um, and that's just not how science works. Most of the existing lab projects in the biology curriculum were designed like a recipe in a beginner's cookbook. They had predictable results that almost always came out as planned. But Matthew wanted to expose his students to the true nature of science, its sense of exploration, the highs of discovery, and the challenges of failure. To do that, he knew that he had to remove the safety net. The first attempt at the Wolbachia lab ended just as Matthew had feared. After a week of pipetting, centrifuging, and careful note-taking, all but one group of students had a blank gel. The students were upset, focusing only on their missteps and the lack of a clear answer. Matthew, however, used that response to continue to shape his teaching philosophy. You know, it's five days of lab, and at the end of that five days of lab, it's not guaranteed that you're going to get data. So you're going to have set your students up. It's the antithesis of the labs that we did before, which we made sure we could fit in a 47-minute period, and we'd get known results at the end. This is the exact opposite. Now, the process of science has become an essential part of Matthew's teaching. Several classes of students have performed the insect lab with successful results. But perhaps more importantly, they are better able to analyze the outcome if it goes wrong. Matthew and his students discuss the importance of controls and other aspects of experimental design throughout the year. Now, the students design their own experiments. They have tested whether mice prefer peanut butter or Nutella. They've burned their lawns to explore whether grasslands grow better after fire, with parental supervision, of course. They've analyzed how plants respond to aluminum, nickel, and lead. Matthew says students need to ask questions and make choices. They need to have some degree of choice and control if they are actually doing science. A couple of weeks earlier, Michael Zatolo instructs his Physics 1 class at School of the Future to come up to the table. It's a public middle and high school near Gramercy Park in Manhattan. The students gather around their teacher. Bald and bearded and wearing a science-themed tie, Zatolo sends two wind-up toys, a car and a duck, whirring across the tabletop. He asks the students 
what they think is inside the toys that makes them run. One guesses that it's a spring. Zotolo explains that it could either be a spring or some sort of elastic rubber band material. Either of these can store potential energy that gets unleashed as kinetic energy. It's the first day of a month-long unit on energy that Zotolo has carefully curated. The students mull over demonstrations, thought experiments, and video clips to get familiar with the way energy transforms from one type to another. Then they practice graphing those changes in a series of bar charts. They'll also write a one-page mastery reflection on using bar charts to model energy transformation. In the weeks that follow, they'll develop mathematical abstractions or models that describe energy's behavior. Essentially, they will develop the equations that most physics students memorize from textbooks themselves. This is called modeling instruction. It is an instructional approach that is gaining popularity among physics teachers. Modeling instruction won the 2014 Excellence in Physics Education Award from the American Physical Society. Here's Zatolo. Modeling instruction basically kind of turns things upside down in the way that science is approached in the high school classroom. Students are now presented at the beginning of a unit with some sort of some basically a lab experience. So first we, we do the lab first and they're presented with some sort of system, some interesting system that they could answer questions or develop questions about themselves. But Zatolo did not always teach this way. When he first started almost 10 years ago, he felt as though he was drowning in a sea of concepts. He was somehow supposed to instill a thorough knowledge of forces, energy, electricity, magnetism, waves, and modern physics in students whose prior concept of physics consisted of the word gravity. He couldn't keep up, and the students who passed through his class rarely went on to study science or engineering in college. But Zitolo was obsessed with self-improvement. He's meticulous about everything from beard trimming to his annual go-for-broke Halloween costumes. He says he thought there was a perfect way to teach physics. He just had to figure out what it was. He was hard on himself for the first couple of years. He'd look back on how he'd taught and think it was horrible. The biggest breakthrough came the summer before Zitolo's fifth year of teaching when he attended a three-week workshop on modeling instruction. Modeling is not a one-size-fits-all teaching method. It's tailored by teachers to suit their individual styles and skills. Like Sony Midha's Eastside Community High School, School of the Future has opted out of the statewide regents' examinations. This decision helps Zatolo switch to modeling. Student-run experiments and data analyses take longer than lecturing, so modeling courses typically cover less ground than a traditional physics curriculum. But Zatolo has found that compared to skimming a sea of concepts, deeper dives create a deeper appreciation for physics and students. The idea is that the students are really constructing their own understanding through engaging in this work. And the work tends to be a little bit more genuine and authentic as opposed to doing a lab for which Theoretically, we should already know the outcome for, and we're just going to calculate a percent error for. Um, so they're actually engaging in work that scientists are actually engaging in constructing models. Zatolo is 32 and in his 10th year of teaching. Perfection has turned out to be an unreachable goal, of course, but through a series of major and incremental refinements to his approach, he is now a model physics teacher. 
A month into summer break, Shauna Comer is in her Bronx apartment, surrounded by plants, keepsakes from her research trips, and her two cats. She's sorting through boxes of quirky drawings and letters from some of the 1,000 kids she's taught over the past nine years. She has moving companies to interview and boxes to pack. Comer waited until the last week of school to break the news to her students, not wanting it to be a distraction. She was leaving Baychester Middle School. She was done teaching. She loves these kids, she says, but she thinks the system is extremely flawed and she just needs a break. In late August, she began her move to Maryland, where she could commute to the Department of Energy's Office of Science in Washington, D.C. Months earlier, she had been accepted into the Albert Einstein Distinguished Educator Fellowship Program, where she hopes to gain a broader perspective on national education policy. Master math and science teachers are passionate about their content area and about developing their craft. They are creative, smart, and engaging, and they adore their students. So one might wonder, why do they quit teaching? Some have given all they can. They've burned out from thinking and worrying about their students seven days a week, and from battling with school officials over resources, scheduling, and a shortage of support. Often, these talented, driven individuals are lured away by career options that offer more stature and higher pay. Some are just naturally adventurous and were always bound to move on. For Comer, it was all of the above. And I will miss my students a lot. Uh, so I don't know how it will be with being in a, in a more office setting and not running around all day and dealing with problems and students and meltdowns and um, singing and dancing. Can't do that in the office. Uh, so it'll be a different experience for me. There are a lot of things about teaching that I won't miss. Um, I feel like there's, there needs to be much more flexibility and much more autonomy given to teachers to be able to create and teach to their passions so that they can engage students more deeply. By all accounts, including Comer's, she was given extraordinary freedom and flexibility by her principal and school. Still, she got dinged for things like failing to write a learning objective on the board before every class. Comer says she didn't have time for that after class periods were shortened from almost an hour to 45 minutes. And besides, her projects and learning objectives, which students recorded in their notebooks, took days or weeks to complete. Michael Zatolo said her departure is a big loss for her students, but admits that the Einstein Fellowship is a logical next step for his friend. He hopes her voice will be powerful at the national level and that she'll push for fewer discrete standards and more big-picture ones, like the next-generation science standards. For his part, Baychester Principal Sean Mangart hopes Comer will return after her 11-month fellowship ends. He says he even has a calendar reminder of when to contact her. Even in the chaos of relocating across state lines, Comer found time to write a lengthy email criticizing the way science is currently taught. Science at the lower level, she says, shouldn't be separated into discrete subjects. Instead, they should be integrated and taught in the context of real life. To learn more about these four master teachers, visit our website for the full article, The Art of Teaching Math and Science. While you're there, check out the rest of our Pencils Down education series and share your thoughts about your own math and science education in our interactive Why We Love or Hate Math and Science. Thomas Lynn, Siobhan Roberts, Natalie Wolchover, and Emily Singer reported this story. I'm Karen Chikurji. For news, interviews, graphics, and more, visit quantummagazine.org.